0: Well, it's, it's really uh, an outsider's view, you know, I'm not Swedish, obviously, <laughs> of, uh, of the entire Scandinavian region. We started in Denmark and then up to Sweden and then over to Norway and then actually finish up way up north in uh, Svalbard. Um, and uh, it's mainly about food, but also about culture and about people and um, trying to understand the impact the huge impact, I would say, that Scandinavian culture has on our lives, even in Australia, that many people at home may not even notice.
1: Yeah. And before we go into a bit what you encountered on your travels and your experiences, I mean, you have a fascination with Scandinavia, right? So where did that all come from? Where did, where did that start? <laughs> Obviously not in Scandinavia, but from afar?
0: You know, it, it's so strange. It, it started in the weirdest place. It started in <laughs> Japan of all, all, of, things, all places. <laughs> where I, I think there's, there's a strange kind of connection that Scandinavia and Japan has as rich. I think, I think the two cultures are very similar. There are a lot of um, shared aspects of uh, the food, the, the, the fashion, the people, etc. And so when I was living in Japan, I actually had an awful lot of friends who were Swedish or half Swedish, half Japanese. Oh. And um, you know, the, my, my best mates lived, lived with them and spent time with them for years and years and years. And then after we all kind of left Japan and went back to our Respective homes, me to Australia and then back to Sweden. I would go to Sweden very often to visit them, and okay. uh, and that's kind of where the whole idea for the series came from. You know, I went there with my wife, who is Japanese, a few times, and she kept saying, "You know, this is like Sweden is 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 like European Japan. <laughs> Everything, so oh, wow. clean okay. people are so uh, understandable." You know the the, the mindset, I think, is very similar between Scandinavia and Japan,
1: and um,
0: the food as well. My, my wife liked the food in Sweden more than any anywhere else in in um, Europe that we visited, and so uh, when I was sitting down with the my executive producer at SBS, deciding where we should go next for Destination Flavor, that was the obvious choice, and plus that Nordic cuisine is right now the biggest influence in, in world food. Yes. So that, that was a no-brainer also.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. And I thought we might start in Denmark, where you met uh, Klaus Meyer, who's considered the godfather of the new Nordic food revolution. I mean, what does that actually mean, the new Nordic food re- revolution?
0: Well, it's people like to think of it of, uh, we've probably mostly heard of the restaurant Noma. It's an incredibly mm. influential two Michelin star restaurant, was voted uh, the Best Restaurant in the World by Restaurant Magazine, three years running um, wow. a few years ago. Uh, and the principles that were put into place by a restaurant like Noma, looking at seasonality and locality and bringing traditions forward into the modern day, um, have been really very strongly adopted across the entire Scandinavian region. You had the departments of agriculture of all the Scandinavian and actually all the Nordic countries um, taking this manifesto, you know, the, the, the phenomenal thing about New Nordic is that it's all written down. You know, it's not just a mm. general idea of what happens. Klaus Meyer and Rene Redzepi, who is the head chef at Noma, they started Noma together. In their first year, they wrote a manifesto saying, we need to make Nordic food, modernise Nordic food in this way. We need to have an emphasis on health and sustainability and organics and tradition and uh, using what is native to the nordic region those principles then were taken to businesses to governments to boardrooms to farmers and they got such incredible support for them that we're starting to see those principles now enacted into legislation across scandinavia and across all the nordic countries um that Klaus meyer when you sit down with him he's a a, quite a, a very famous danish chef who has a number of interests throughout denmark and and across the world now you can't disagree with him he's so infectious in in how Mm. he believes in these kind of things like sure we're not going to make everything organic today but why don't we just start with this little corner of your company why don't if you're the world if you're scandinavia's biggest dairy producer why don't we start making a little portion of your uh production organic Uh, and and They've seen it snowball from there, and that's translated everywhere into schools, into fine dining restaurants, into the way people look at home, to what's on supermarket shelves. And it is just incredible to see.
1: Yeah, it's one of those aha moments. It seems so obvious when you hear about <laughs> a read, and you think, thinking, hmm, why don't we think about this before? I mean, it's yeah, it's a no brainer. I mean, the, this whole thing, I think it's interesting too, talking about you know, the food culture and the respect in seasonality. In You know, I'm Swedish, so I know exactly how hard it is and when the permafrost comes in, you know, nothing <laughs> yeah. grows. And you're thinking, you know, why do they pay more attention to seasonality uh, or do that? Is it just because of the climate that it is so restrictive?
0: Well, I think there's, there's parts of that. And I think that's what the traditions, you know, things like jam making, things like pickling and salting and fermenting are all a response to, I guess, the harsh winters mm. that you have in Scandinavia. But then, you know, we were there at, uh, at the beginning of spring. And at the beginning of spring, there were all of these other things that uh, we were looking at that the restaurants were doing. Say, for example, without native citrus, they were using a lot of uh, oxalis, uh, wood sorrel. Um, for that acidity in all of the dishes and uh, rams and capers that hadn't been pickled from the season previous. And these these really inventive and innovative ways of, of creating cuisine with what is there. And I think my, my personal view is that the harsher the environment or the more restraints that you have, the more creative you get to be. You know, if you just have access to everything, if someone says, go paint me a picture, you can paint everything. Uh, but if they, if they say, paint me a picture, but you've only got to be able to constrain yeah. it on a canvas of this size and you can only use this certain number of colours, et cetera, you have to be more creative and that's what makes it more exciting.
1: Yeah, and I mean, seeing uh, these uh, programs, which I very highly recommend because they're so exciting, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I should be back in <laughs> Scandinavia. Uh, <laughs>
0: There's a bit of that, you know. I, I, I was there for quite a few months filming yeah. the series and I've been uh, back there quite a few times over the years and every time I go there, I'm like, well, oh, you know, we sh- I should spend more time here.
1: Yes, but then you remember November. That's what I always do. I remember <laughs> November, and I go, ah, that's why I'm not there. But <laughs> yeah,
0: nobody likes getting back at three p.m.
1: No, and the melancholy set scene. But you know, that also adds to the whole vibe. But do you find so? You know, there's obviously such distinct differences between uh, Denmark and Norway and Sweden to some extent. But what are the commonalities? Is it the the produce? Is it the restraints, the restrictions? Is that you know what? What can you see? The kind of what leads yeah, them there, together.
0: There is uh, in all of the Scandinavian countries. One thing that I found very strong was a huge amount of respect for other people. You know, oh, the, okay. Um, uh, I, I don't really understand the culture well enough to really say that there's these differences between Danes and Swedes and Norwegians, and I'm going to get myself mm. into trouble if I even try <laughs> to do that. But. Um, there was something really lovely about the society across Scandinavia, where you could be in a cafe and it wasn't, you know, people jostling to see who was the first in line, and then not. People weren't trying to, I guess, e- express their individuality as strongly as we seem to cling to it in Australia. And yes. it's a slightly controversial topic, but having lived in Japan for a very long time, um, there's there's no real aversion to being a part of society you know people in japan like to be comfortable in their role in society and being part of a group of people in australia i think that there is an almost pathological aversion to that you know nobody wants to be seen to be doing what everyone else is doing and everyone wants to be very individual in in their musical tastes or you know which lane they drive in in the car. <laughs> no, I think e- you absolutely
1: everything. hit the nail on the head because that's something I often say. I think here is, you know, it's so ugly to say part of the collective. But, you know, the, hence, obviously, we love public transport in Sweden and all that because it's, yes. it's nothing ugly to be part of the collective, um, the collective in society and the collective in things you do. It's actually quite, you know, egalitarian, which I think is a really good thing. But, you know, here it's really absolutely. ugly because it's all about be the best individual you can be and I'm thinking "Mm, there's nothing wrong with actually being a bit collective in the end of the day is there?
0: yeah it's it's strange actually how readily that comes through you know my wife has probably been to Scandinavia three times in in absolute total not for a few few days or weeks at each time and that's one of the things that she really really quite obviously noticed I guess having grown up with that type of a culture in Japan, coming to Australia, seeing what it's like when that's not around, and then going to uh, Scandinavia and, and being part of it again. It was very, very noticeable.
1: Yeah, and it's quite a nice feel, isn't it? I reckon. Mm. Now, back to food. Now, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, there's absolutely so many fascinating things in this series, and yes, I'm completely biased because I'm both Swedish and Scandinavian, so I really would like to hear a bit more about the restaurant Ekstedt in Stockholm, which is okay. run by the chef Niklas Eerdstedt at the helm. So what makes this restaurant different to a lot of other restaurants?
0: The attention that Nicholas puts, or Nicholas puts in his um, uh, historical approach to the food that he creates. You know, it's not a throwback Viking restaurant where you eat just like everyone did in Viking times. It's very modern food, cooked in very in modern ways. Yeah, that's what I thought was over fire. You walk through his kitchen, and and, uh, usually a Michelin-star kitchen, he just got his uh, Michelin-star renewed a couple of weeks ago, so congratulations, Nicholas. You're probably not listening to this, but he's a very, (laughs) very very nice guy. Um, You walk through a a Michelin-star kitchen, it's usually stainless steel and pristine and not a speck out of place. And you walk into Nicholas's kitchen, and, and there's these hooks on the walls and giant tongs covered in coal and... The, the chefs are wearing big leather gloves to move hot pots that are covered in ash all around. And it's just incredible. It looks like a torture chamber, actually, if I'm going to be honest. I know. You don't think a um,
1: kitchen.
0: Yeah, and, and, it's, and it, the food that comes out of it is so refined and so delicious. You know, uh, mm. marbled beef cooked uh, in a fireball of hay. You know, it's covered in hay <laughs> As and you set do. on fire with hot fat and then served with a really delicate oyster emulsion, you know, some incredible food that was... um, And Nicholas has has a few restaurants around Stockholm, and um, he's a really lovely guy. And, you know, he and I off-camera spent a bit of time just walking around to other restaurants and having coffee and doing other things. So we got along really well. But that's his flagship restaurant. That's the one that he's got a Michelin star for. He's got some other more casual places where you can just go and have a few drinks and a a relax. And that's all part of, I guess, the, the... Experience, yeah, but um, very different. Yeah, it was that was one of my absolute favourite uh, restaurants and also experiences in all of Scandinavia was spending a bit of time with Nicholas, walking through uh, the markets with him, walking through uh, the kitchens of his restaurants, seeing his approach and the food. Not only is it exciting and interesting, but also absolutely delicious too.
1: Mm, oh, it looked fantastic. I must say, I was salivating even at ten a.m. in the morning. <laughs> um, and of course, we can't go past. Um, Talking about Swedish food and your experience without mentioning the Swedish meatball. Now, <laughs> what, what did you discover about the meatball that you didn't know before?
0: You know, it's really hard to find meatballs. Um, not not anywhere, but the ones that we when we were trying to find a place that specialised in meatballs. I guess it was just so it's so ubiquitous across Sweden to find somebody that actually really specialises in meatballs. It's actually, yeah. quite hard to find. Um, <laughs> But we did. We we went to uh, Meatballs for the People, relatively new place in Stockholm. And um, the I guess in Australia, growing up in Australia, the approach to meatballs tends to be very either Italian or Asian, which uh, are both cooked in a very similar way. And they're cooked uh, by really frying the meatball first and then cooking it in a soup or a stock or something or a sauce for the more Italian style. Um, I really liked the way that uh I was shown in Sweden, which was baking the meatballs first almost steaming them until they were through and then frying them in brown butter and mm. that was so delicious. You know, yeah. It just, it that it, it had a much fresher flavor, that nutty flavour of the brown butter was was amazing and and uh that's how I do my meatballs now. So you know, yeah. I, I um, definitely learned things on my trip that I've put into practice in my own kitchen.
1: Well, that's one thing, because I must say, looking at these um, different experiences, it was like a throwback to childhood because, man, did we eat butter. And I realized that, yes, <laughs> you know, we had a diet of, I remember, cream and butter. And I thought, yes, certain things haven't changed. Obviously, maybe not as much cream, but it's butter on everything. And, you know, our cholesterol levels must be awful, but when we seem seen happy, happy enough. And uh, so... If you would name some three vital ingredients in the uh, Scandinavian pantry, what do you think? Apart from butter that I just mentioned, but what are things that you think that seem to be a crossover link between all the different uh, cuisines? Mm,
0: I would say uh, berries um, yeah. were very, very common, whether in jam form or fresh or pickled or however you, you have them. Berries were just everywhere. Butter was butter was also everywhere. Yeah. Um, uh, marzipan, I'm a big fan of. You know, when I was growing up, I, I used to read all the fairy tales and things about marzipan, and then, you know, this is this is 1980s Australia. We would uh, get inspired by the fairy tales of marzipan sweets and things, rush out by yep. marzipan <laughs> put it in our mouths and go, what the heck is that? It was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then going to Scandinavia and actually having good marzipan, mm. I'm, I'm back on the marzipan bandwagon again. And I'm sure that if you can buy marzipan these days, it's going to be much better than what we had in Adelaide in 1982. Yeah. But uh, marzipan I really liked. Um, fresh yeast was one of the real treats for me, uh being over there, you know we have a lot of dried yeast here in, in supermarkets, but the fresh yeast for mm. things like uh Sammler and uh, a lot of the other baked um, uh, the, the Danish type pastries bean yeah. abroad and things in Denmark where fresh yeast was was quite mandatory for that. um I developed a bit of a taste for the the yellow peas the Swedish yellow peas as well okay Um for, for making soup over mm-hmm. there yes, yes. yes. Um, and I, I really did in- enjoy those uh, <laughs> while I was over there. Um, and a lot of dill, a lot of dill mm. everywhere. Uh, and luckily, I like dill. <laughs> so yes, it's it delicious, was, it was, isn't it? It was good for me.
1: Yeah. Sometimes... But I,
0: I use it in different ways. You know, I used to just put a bit of dill on top of something, but now I poach fish in dill oh, and, yes. uh, you know, add it to sauces. I like all of the, the rows and things in a lot of the Scandinavian food, yes. particularly, Scotland, um, you know, uh... Yeah, the, 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 the rose stirred through creams and things used to, to you know, think things like uh, uh, toast skagen and, and things like that.
1: Delicious. So mm. my final question, you know, you've been eating all these wonderful things and you've met these amazing people and the wild boars and, you know, all that stuff. But I think the question that all Australians would like to know is that, did you get a decent coffee?
0: We had many decent coffees, you know. <laughs> I've had some. I've had some bad ones, but um, I, I actually don't think there's there's too much bad coffee that you can have. Every cup of coffee is different, you know, yeah. and the, the coffee is much more about the company than it is about how artisanally roasted the beans are.